Hello wise and wicked friends. This week we are going to look into one of the most famous psychological experiments in history. An experiment which poses the question, what happens when you put good people in an evil place? Can evil be brought out purely by circumstance? Welcome to The Wise and the Wicked. My name is KJ. I have started this podcast as a means to educate myself and whoever feels like listening about different historical facts and figures which you may or may not have heard of. This means we look at all things crime, history, problematic ones and the problem solvers. So this week the episode is a little bit longer today but I thought it was really important to have as much information as possible to really tell the story correctly. Today we are having a look back to the summer of 1971 to Stanford University, California. Here Professor Philip G. Zimbardo carried out an experiment. This experiment has been cited in pretty much every philosophy psychology book. It has been studied, recreated and even criticised countless times. It is known to be one of the most famous psychological experiments in history. This experiment aims to answer the question, is evil ingrained in people or can it be brought out by circumstance? This is the Stanford Prison Experiment. Zimbardo himself explains, How we went about testing these questions and what we found may astound you. Our planned two-week investigation into the psychology of prison life had to be ended after only six days because of what the situation was doing to the college students who participated. In only a few days, our guards became sadistic and our prisoners became depressed and showed signs of extreme stress. Please read the story of what happened and tell us about the nature of human nature. Quick little disclaimer before we jump in here, we will be referencing mental illness and there will be some descriptions of harassment and bullying, so please use your discretion. As usual, I will start off with a little bit of backstory for some context and then we will get into the meat and bones of the story. So let's get cracking. When we look at the Stanford Prison Experiment, it's important to note that experiments like this and others similar to it were carried out in universities by professors for many different reasons. The experiments were conducted to give a better understanding of human behaviour. They were to explore psychological behaviours, the fundamental reasons we are, the way that we are. And many professors would use them as teaching tools and actually include the students in the research process to help them learn better. Um, I will be mentioning a lot of names in this episode with two professors that you need to know the names are of Philip Zimbardo, who is our man at the helm of the Stanford Prison Experiment today, and another guy called Stanley Milgram. 
So both Zimbardo and Milgram were classmates, actually, and then colleagues. Both professors conducted many psychological experiments throughout their careers, and some of which were very heavily influenced by each other. They were both fascinated with human behaviour, but in slightly different ways. So Zimbardo focused his studies more on dynamics of power and control, while Milgram, he was more interested in how humans acted under the influence of authority. So Milgram's fascination grew after studying the aftermath of the Nuremberg trials. Now, if you don't know what the Nuremberg trials are, they were the series of trials that were done after the Second World War where they put the Nazi leaders on trial who essentially blamed their superiors for their horrendous actions and claimed that they only behaved so badly because essentially they were told to. And Milgram wanted to know how much of this could actually be proven and how far could obedience to authority take the average person. This led Milgram to conduct an experiment that was equally infamous and it is known as the Milgram experiment. I don't know where he came up with the name, lads. To put it briefly, the Milgram experiment was carried out in Yale University in the early 60s. The participants of this study were told that it was done for the purpose of understanding learning and memory. And for the study, the participants would be split into two, learners and teachers. The reality was there was no learners and that the participants were teachers and the people who were posing as learners were actually actors. So the main focus of the study, the actual main focus of the study, was the teacher. And they wanted to see how the teacher would react to being given um, directions by a person of authority and just how obedient this person would be. The teachers were just ordinary people. The experiment itself was done that the teacher would issue questions to the learner and if they answered incorrectly, they would be instructed to give the learner an electric shock. With each incorrect answer, they were going to be giving more and more severe electric shocks. And now the teacher could not actually see the learner during the experiment, but they could hear their reactions to the electric shocks. Now, the results of the experiments were actually really scary. They found that it was a surprisingly high level of participants would continue to administer higher and higher levels of electric shock to the learners under the experimenter's instruction. So despite the cries of pain and pleas and protests from the learners, which of course we now know were actors, but at the time the participants did not know this. So it was showing us just how far people would go when they were told to do so and given these instructions by somebody who they deemed to be an authority to them. And the study also raised huge ethical concerns that would absolutely not fly today essentially. And it had a profound impact on the level of understanding of obedience and moral decision making. And it also showed that the participants acted completely against their own individual ethical beliefs simply because they were asked to do so. It was these findings in particular that inspired our buddies in Bardo to take things a little bit further. Off the back of the knowledge of obedience combined with his fascination of power and control dynamics, he wanted to see how this would work in a real life situation. So in a real world situation where there are actually strict power dynamics, like for example, a prison. And he wanted to see 
How does the dynamic of the relationship between a prisoner and a prison guard affect the average person? What happens when you put a good person in an evil place? And can the circumstances of said evil place change the average person's nature? So, little backstory on Zimbardo. So, he was born Philip Zimbardo in New York City in 1933. Zimbardo is massively educated. He completed his degree in 1954 in Brooklyn College, where he gained a triple major in psychology, sociology, and anthropology. He then went on to do a master's, and when that wasn't quite good enough for him, he went and did a PhD in psychology from Yale, where he taught after that from 1959 to 1960, alongside our pal Stanley Milgram, who we just talked about. So then from 1960 to 1967, he was a professor of psychology at New York University. And from 1967 to 1968, he taught at Columbia University. So he was, we're talking a big cheese here. He was teaching highly, highly educated students in the best colleges in America, I mean the world essentially and he himself was hugely educated and then in 1968 he began teaching in Stanford University which of course is where a story takes place and he would teach there until his retirement in 2003. Zimbardo had numerous famous publications including Psychology and Life, The Lucifer Effect, Understanding How Good People Turn Evil and The Time Paradox. However, he was, of course, most famously known for his involvement in the Stanford Prison Experiment. So the study itself was funded by a government grant given to the college by the U.S. Office of Naval Research, who wanted to study antisocial behaviour. And as we previously mentioned, they wanted to further understand the relationship between prisoners and prison guards. The idea was to create a mock prison, fill it with prisoners and fill it with guards and study the effects of their roles they had on each other's behaviours. The prisoners and the prison guards were all to be local college students and the research team behind the experiment, put an ad in the local newspaper offering $15 a day for male participants to carry out this experiment to study prisons. There wasn't a huge amount of information in the actual advertisement, but it very clearly stated it was for a prison experiment. And 15 euro, or sorry, $15, I should say, a day was a lot at this time. You're talking early 70s. So 75 students applied and all 75 students were interviewed and asked to take personality tests. This was so they could rule out anybody who didn't fit their profile exactly. So anybody who had a criminal record, a record of abusing drugs, or anyone who displayed any personality disorder, psychological issue, or physical disabilities were removed from the group. This is something to keep in mind when we delve further into the experiment later. So out of the 75, 24 students were chosen to be involved in this experiment. There were nine prisoners with three alternates and nine guards with three alternates. And David Jaff is an undergraduate research associate at the time. He played the role of the prison warden, while Zimbardo himself was to play the role of superintendent of the prison. The students were chosen to take part, did not know each other beforehand. 
Um, Zimbardo and his researchers randomly decided who was going to be a prisoner and who was going to be a guard with a simple flip of a coin. The prisoners had to stay in the prison for 24 hours a day while the guards worked three teams at a time. Sorry, three person teams at a time, each doing eight hour shifts. So after their shift, the guards were free to go home until their next shift. The mock prison itself was set up in the basement of Jason Hall in Stanford University. The room where the prison was built was typically used as a laboratory. And in order to make the prison feel more real, Zimbardo and his team consulted prison officials and ex-convicts before completing the design. The prison had three six by nine foot cells, complete with steel bars and cell numbers. And there was also a solitary confinement room, which was formerly a storage closet. And there was a prison yard where the prisoners could walk around and eat and exercise rooms for the guards and the warden to use. The prisoners would be blindfolded before taken to the bathroom, so they did not recognise where they were. While they were in the mock prison, the guards and the prisoners were observed by Zimbardo and his team at all times. They had hidden cameras and microphones all over the place. Think about Big Brother, but like darker. The true nature of the experiment itself kicked off in a dramatic fashion, with the intention of giving the participants who were to be the prisoners the real effect. They were actually arrested from their homes on the morning of Sunday, the 17th of August, 1971. They would be arrested for, quote, violation of penal codes 211, armed robbery and and burglary, and they would be shoved into a police car while onlookers and neighbours watched from their windows. They were brought to the actual Palo Alto police station, booked, fingerprinted and left blindfolded in a cell awaiting their fate. It's important to note here that these guys had no idea this was going to happen. The arrests were a total surprise and they were actually part of the overall experiment. The prisoners were then shoved in another car, still blindfolded, and brought to the, quote, Stamford County Jail. When they arrived, they were greeted by the warden and then subjected to humiliating strip searches and delousing. So after this, they were given a uniform, which is a generous term for what was essentially a smock dress with a number on it. And they were not allowed to wear underwear underneath this dress. And they were given a cap to cover their hair and a chain that had to be worn at all times around their ankle. The idea here, according to Zimbardo, was that, quote, real prisoners don't wear dresses, but real male prisoners, we have learnt, do feel humiliated, do feel emasculated, and we thought we could produce the same effects very quickly by putting men in dress without any underclothes. The idea of taking their sense of identity away, like real prisoners, and to get them to comply with prison rules. The prisoners were only allowed to be addressed by their number and could also only address each other by the number that was printed on their smock dresses. The students who were assigned the role of the guards had no training whatsoever. They were pretty much left to their own devices. With the help of the warden, they drew up a couple of rules that the prisoners had to comply with. And these included, of course, the prisoners must address each other by their number only. And the prisoners must remain silent during rest periods, after lights out, during meals and whenever they are outside in the prison yards. 
the guards were given uniforms that had mirrored glasses and clubs which were borrowed from the local police. They were told their role was to maintain law and order in the prison and command control from the prisoners. The brief that they received from both Zimbardo and Jaff was that they could use any means necessary, aside from physical violence, in order to maintain control in their prison. This meant harassment, bullying, removing privileges, withholding food and using the solitary confinement cell were all permitted. On the first night of the experiment, the guards on duty decided to see how much control they actually had over these prisoners and this prison. And they wanted to show off this newfound power. They decided to wake up the prisoners at 2.30am by blaring an alarm and ordering them into a headcount. Some of the prisoners initially thought this was a joke and they didn't comply with the guards. They were soon met with punishment of push-ups for not taking the headcount seriously and this was enough to cause some prisoners to rebel already. As a sign of retaliation, on the second morning, when the next shift guards came on duty, some of the prisoners had already began to remove the numbers from their uniforms and even use their beds to barricade themselves into their cells. A new shift guards had no idea what to do or how to respond at first, and they actually ordered for backup. Things were already getting ugly, and this was only the second day. The guards managed to finally get the barricaded cell doors open by basically just ramming them with fire extinguishers. The prisoner who was the leader of this said rebellion was a man named Doug Corpy, so known within the prison walls as Prisoner 8612. He was removed from his cell, literally kicking and screaming his head off. He was saying, quote, fuck your simulation. This is a fucking simulated experiment, not a prison. Prisoner 8612 was grabbed, pulled out, stripped naked and made to go into solitary confinement, also known as the hole, which was essentially a closet. And his bed was removed from his cell. When he would ultimately be released from the hole, he was to sleep naked on the floor of his cell. As a way to stop another rebellion from happening, the guards decided to put their power to use and they were to move the prisoners around the cells. The rebellious ones would be denied their usual food rations and denied their beds. The more well-behaved prisoners were then put into one cell which was deemed the privileged cell. These prisoners had their beds and were actually given special meals. But in order to keep the prisoners on their toes or confuse them or just keep everybody annoyed the guards actually randomly moved prisoners from cell to cell without any word of warning and they claimed this was just to keep them confused and distrusting the both the guards and their fellow inmates so after this period conditions rapidly went downhill from here the guards were under control now and they began to treat the prisoners worse and worse they would continuously wake them during the night and make them clean out the toilets with their bare hands. They were denied use of bathrooms and given buckets in their cells instead. After a time, the guards had just randomly decided to stop emptying the buckets, which was, you guessed it, another form of punishment. And you can only imagine the smell. 
They wanted to remove any sense of what was about to happen to them and they wanted to remove any sense of comfort that the prisoners had, which I'm sure was slim. And this was done, of course, as yet another punishment to the prisoners. As we know, there were cameras on the participants the entire time. The researchers were watching and recording every move. However, it was reported that the most aggressive behavior occurred when the staff were not paying attention. Now, how they knew they weren't paying attention, I don't know. But this is what they're claiming. And this was the most frustrating part for the prisoners, allegedly. This resulted in the prisoners becoming more and more sullen and more submissive. One guard in particular was the worst, and his name is Dave Eshelman. So known within the prison as John Wayne, From the second Eshelman put on his guard uniform, it was reported that he began speaking in this faux southern drawl. He said he had recently watched the movie Cool Hand Luke and the tough prison warden in the film became his inspiration for the quote character he played. He would harass and bully the prisoners more than any of the other guards and it was reported that he would order prisoners to remake beds over and over again claiming it wasn't done correctly. He would scream at them at the top of his lungs. He would abuse them. He just did everything he did in his power to become intimidating to these people. He would order headcounts at random points in the night to wake up the prisoners at random times he said this would keep them disorientated and he would then in the middle of the night order them to stand with their hands on the wall and their backs to the guards and essentially shout their prison numbers over and over again all while being screamed insulted at them and John Wayne himself would also make them exercise during these night counts this included any amount of jumping jacks push-ups dancing, you name it. And again, or you guessed it, while hurling abuse at them. After just 36 hours, Doug Corpy, also known as 8612, was released from solitary confinement and returned to his cell. It was clear, though, that he was suffering from extreme emotional disturbance. He was brought to Zimbardo and here he asked if he could leave. To the shock of 8612, Zimbardo responded to him as a superintendent of a prison, not as the research leader of an experiment. And he said, quote, well, I can see to it that the guards don't hassle you personally. And in return, all I would like is some information from time to time about what the prisoners are doing. So essentially, I'm saying that I'd like you to be a snitch, an informer think it over and if you still want to leave fine prisoner 8612 returned back to the cells completely outraged and went and told all the other prisoners that nobody could leave he started to believe that there wasn't any way out of this prison and it was a genuine prison now not an experiment feeling totally hopeless prisoner 8612 shortly thereafter really began to struggle and began shouting and crying uncontrollably I have a little clip of him here. I feel so up inside. I feel really up inside. You don't know. I gotta go. I to a doctor. Anything. I can't stay in there. I fucked up. I don't know how to explain it. I'm fucked up inside. Help me out! Help me out now! God damn it! Fucked up. You don't know. You don't know. I mean, God. I mean, Jesus Christ! I'm burning up inside. Don't you know? I just fucking can't take it. 
Some critics think that Doug was faking here, but even Zimbardo was recorded saying that it was a plan that Corpy had. Zimbardo said, quote, he knew that if he acted crazy, we would have to release him. To be honest, I'm not sure here. I actually think he sounds pretty reliable and I think his distress sounds real. Um, but anyway, they released him straight away. And the lines between reality and fiction were becoming blurred for more than just Prisoner 8612. Zimbardo himself became completely paranoid that Prisoner 8612 would come back with, quote, outsiders as an attempt to liberate the prison. He wanted to do anything to keep this from happening. So to do so, he actually dismantled the prison and began to move the prisoners to a different section of the college. This apparent liberation never happened, of course, and the prison was dismantled for absolutely no reason. And of course, this really pissed off the guards because then they had to rebuild it themselves. And the frustration that the guards felt, of course, was then taken out on the prisoners. So the next prisoner to rebel was prisoner 819. 819 locked himself in a cell and refused to take part in the count. This meant that the other prisoners were picked on by the guards even more, which ended up in them turning against one another. And any solidarity between the prisoners was slowly slipping away. Prisoner 819 was distraught and alone, and he was then brought to Zimbardo after showing signs of severe distress. While Zimbardo was talking to him about how he was feeling, they began to hear the other prisoners chanting in the next room. They were saying, quote, Prisoner 819 did a bad thing. Prisoner 819 did a bad thing. Over and over and over again. Prisoner 819 did a bad thing. 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 As soon as I realized that 819 could hear this, I rushed to the room where I had left him. And what I found was a boy crying hysterically, while in the background his fellow prisoners were chanting and yelling that he is a bad prisoner and that they were being punished because of him. At this point, prisoner 819 began to visibly sob. Zimbardo said that he kept saying he couldn't leave now because he didn't want the other prisoners to think he was a bad prisoner. Zimbardo found himself repeating to him, you are not a prisoner and this is not a prison. And at this point, Zimbardo said it was like a cloud had lifted off of this guy's face. Zimbardo was astounded at how quickly this eight-year-old, sorry, this 18-year-old college student could lose his grasp on reality. Prisoner 819 thoroughly thought that he was a prisoner in a prison and he was soon removed. So prisoner 819 was then replaced with one of the alternates, a man named Clay Ramsey, also known as prisoner 416. So like the other prisoners, 416 was blindfolded, stripped, deliced. At the stage he entered the prison, it was a quote madhouse. He was warned by other prisoners not to make any trouble and that this was in fact a real prison. And to them, it certainly felt like it. 416 like all the other prisoners, began to be harassed at the hands of John Wayne. He would make him parade around like Frankenstein with his arms in the air. He would order the prisoners to do push-ups while ordering 416 to sing at them. He used to make him sing Amazing Grace for some reason. These were games the guards used to play and this would go on for hours and hours and hours, never seeming to get tired of their 
abuse. As a result of being harassed to this dramatic extent, 416 claimed, I began to feel I was losing my identity until finally I wasn't Clay. I was 416. I was really my number and 416 was going to have to decide what to do. I began to feel that I was losing my identity, that, that the person that I call Clay, the person who, who put me in this place, the person who volunteered to, to go into this prison, because it was a prison to me, it still is a prison to me. I, I don't look on it as an experiment or a simulation. It was just a, a, a prison that was run by psychologists instead of run by the state. So prisoner 416 decided to go on hunger strike and it was a way for him to fight back. He was actually making headway too. After missing two meals, it really seemed to have an effect on the guards and John Wayne himself threw him in the hole. And while in the hole, he ordered the guards to bang on the door of it with their nightsticks, which would make obviously a really loud noise. And he ordered the prisoners to stand outside the door as well and shout repeatedly, thank you 416. This was just an idea to torment 416 while he was in the hole. On the sixth day, Zimbardo brought in a colleague, Christina Maslach, to show her his prison. Not his experiment, his prison. <laughs> Maslach explained that when she walked into the prison, what she saw, what was actually going on, she felt completely sick to her stomach. She was completely horrified and went directly to Zimbardo and asked him how the hell he could carry on this experiment with his students suffering so much. Zimbardo was so caught up in the prison and actually began to think of himself as a prison superintendent and what the results he was seeing that he actually forgot that this was a group of young men that were massively suffering at the hands of his experiment. He was responsible. The next day, Zimbardo decided to end the experiment and let all of the prisoners and the guards go home safely. So around two months later, there was a series of interviews carried out after the experiment. Zimbardo gathered all the participants together, put them in a room so they could have a chance to talk to each other about their experience. Have another little clip of 416, Clay Ramsey and um, John Wayne having a conversation with each other. It harms me. Why? I mean harms. I mean in the present tense, it harms me. How did it harm you? How does it harm you? Just to think it, about it, it, you mean that people can be like that? It, yeah. It let me in on some knowledge that, that I've never experienced firsthand. Uh -huh. I've read about it. I've read a lot about it. But I've never experienced it firsthand. I've never seen someone turn that way. And I know you're a nice guy. You know? You do you understand? I do. I do know you're a nice guy. Why, I don't, I don't get that because I know what you can turn into. It surprised me that no one said anything to stop me. No one, no one said, Carmen, you can't say those things to me. Those things are, are, are sick. Nobody said that. They just accepted what I said. I said, you know, go tell that man to the face he's the scum of the earth. And they'd do it without question. They'd do push-ups without question. They'd sit in the hole. They'd, uh, they'd abuse each other. And here they're supposed to have a little bit, they're supposed to be together as, as a unit in, in jail, but here they're, they're abusing each other because I requested them to. And no one questioned my authority at all. And it really shocked me. Why didn't people, when I started to get abused people so much, I started to get so profane that, and still people didn't say anything. So there are two sides we kind of need to look at here. The side of the guards and the side of the prisoners. When we look at the prisoners' experience, it's a little simpler because we can just see how this is a group of young men reacting to their horrendous surroundings. 
So some of them lashed out, while some became more sullen, some became more submissive, each suffering in their own way. However, when we look at the guards, it's not so clear-cut. When Zimbardo talks about the results of the experiments, he simply puts it as, quote, Most evil in the world comes about not out of evil motives, but out of somebody saying, you know, get with the program, be a team player. When a person feels, I am not personally responsible, I am not accountable, it is a role I'm playing, or these are orders I have gotten, then you allow yourself to do things that you thought you would never do under any ordinary circumstance. But critics state that this is not actually necessarily true or fair, and these findings can not be correctly relied upon because the experiment was not exactly thoroughly fair. While some of the guards behaved alarmingly, absolutely, a lot of others didn't. But of course, the results of the more dramatic guards are the ones that get the limelight, as these are the more outrageous ones. But according to the guards that took part, they were asked to be as tough as possible. They were told to bully and harass the prisoners without any sort of remorse. So apparently even some of the guards were told they weren't being tough enough. Obviously not John Wayne, but the other ones. Eshelman himself, aka John Wayne, even claimed that they were under the impression that the real experiment was on the prisoners and how they would react under extreme conditions. Therefore, he was trying to be as tough as he possibly could be, and he said he really wanted to ramp things up each day. You put a uniform on and are given a role, I mean, uh, a job, saying your job is to keep these people in line then you're not, certainly not the same person as if you were in street clothes and in a different role. You really become that person once you put on that khaki uniform, you put on the glasses, you put on, you take the nightstick, and, you know, you, you act the part. That's your, that's your costume, and uh, you have to uh, act accordingly when you put it on. In 2018, Etchelman was interviewed again to tell his side of the story. Here he claims that during the experiment, he really wanted to be as nasty as possible and each day he would try and think of new ways to be even worse than the day before. He explains that there are two reasons for this. Firstly, he thought he was truly helping the researchers and helping them get a better understanding of the types of human behaviour that they were actually studying. And the second reason is that he actually found it really interesting and he enjoyed the part that he played while he was doing it. And the little experiments that he spoke about himself in the clip that we just listened to were very, very fascinating to him. And he really wanted to keep carrying out his little experiments. Eshelman explains how he knew what Zimbardo was looking for. And he decided himself that he was going to do a better job than any of the other guards in giving Zimbardo the results that he wanted from his study. So... This is known as demand characteristics. This is essentially when participants of a study know what the study is trying to prove and almost mimic the study so it gets the results that they want. Though this may have been the case, Eshelman still says that it does not excuse his actions. And you can see in the interview, in the more recent interview, that he actually is very remorseful for how he acted in the study and he claims he was only 18. <laughs> And there were a lot more subtle factors which influenced this study. They were, again, all willing participants and they knew it was a prison experiment the whole time. Nobody was under the impression it was anything else. And each and every one of them responded to a newspaper ad wanting to do a 
prison trial. Which, according to critics, begs the question, why do these men already have characteristics somewhere ingrained in them that would respond in a particular way in a prison environment? And they wouldn't have responded to the ad if they weren't somewhat interested in the prison environment at all, would they? So according to an article I found in The New Yorker, the Stanford Prison Experiment shows us the following. Stanford Prison Experiment suggests that extreme behaviour flows from extreme institutions. Prisons aren't blank slates. Guards do indeed self-select their jobs, and Zimbardo's students self-selected into a study of prison life. Like Zimbardo's men, they are bombarded with expectations from the first and shaped by pre-existing norms and patterns of behaviour. The lesson of the Stanford experiment isn't that any random human being is capable of descending into sadism and tyranny. It is that certain institutions and environments demand these behaviours and then perhaps can change them. So either way, the experiment simulated heated debates and still does to this day. The guards, either way, felt extreme guilt for their actions and the prisoners felt extremely humiliated. Since studies like the Stanford Prison Experiment and the Milgram Experiment that we spoke about earlier, the rules have changed dramatically and they are much stricter safeguards to, that have been put in place to protect against participants of said studies. Either way, they are fascinating for us to look back on and read into. And I am extremely interested to hear your thoughts on today's episode. So there are tons and tons of YouTube videos about this. And there's even a movie about it with has Ezra Miller in it. So it's a really good watch. And I would love to hear your thoughts. So please get in touch with your thoughts. And you can contact me on Instagram or you can contact me directly via the website. But I thank you very much for listening to today's episode. And I'll see you again in two weeks time.